For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Kendra Horn now knows her Republican opponent in November. Congressman Mark, Mark Wayne Mullen defeated former State House Speaker T.W. Shannon in Tuesday's runoff. The two will face off against Libertarian Robert Murphy and Independent Ray Woods to fill Senator Jim Inhofe's unexpired seat. Ryan, what does Horn need to do to take on Mullen? Well, I think Mark Wayne Mullen is going to be very difficult to beat. Uh, you know, just the, the dynamics of the campaign and the race that will shape up for this November make it difficult for any Democrat. And, you know, Kendra Horn is about as good, if not the best you can get to, to be the standard bearer for the Democratic Party going up uh, for an open U.S. Senate race. But even still, the, mm-hmm. it's going to be very difficult and uh, I think also difficult for her to attract national money to come into Oklahoma when she won that 5th District Congressional race uh, a couple cycles back, she was the beneficiary of um, national uh, money that saw an opportunity to pick up a congressional seat from an incumbent Republican in Oklahoma. Right now, Senate Democrats across the nation are trying to just keep the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there's a, and then there's also a bunch of national money trying to for Democrats to just keep the House or to make sure that if they do lose the House that they have as close of a margin as possible. So uh, it's going to be difficult to attract that national money. That said, Kendra is a, a seasoned campaigner. She works uh, just you know, really hard. She's got a good team around her. Um, I think that her messaging you know, really writes itself. You know, she's somebody who really wants to represent all Oklahomans. And Mark Wayne Mullen, in his uh, victory speech on, on Tuesday night, you know, really, you know, continues to draw this line, even moving into the general election, that Democrats are an enemy. I mean, I, I really feel like that Mark Wayne Mullen looks at me as a registered Democrat as an enemy, not just somebody who has, you know, different ideas or different approaches to how government should work or shouldn't work, but, you know, as, as the, op, you know, not, and even just not even the opposition, uh, but he uses, you know, very militant language to go after about a third of Oklahomans. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there may have been a hope that we shift into the general election mode and he starts trying to reach out to all Oklahomans. That is not the case. I mean, he has made it very clear that when he goes to Congress, he's going to represent number one, Donald Trump first, and then number two, uh, Republicans, to the extent that they don't disagree with Donald Trump. We've already seen some of that with him saying that he won't necessarily support Mitch McConnell uh, as majority leader if the Republicans do take the United States Senate back. That is a direct result of Trump's endorsement of Mark Wayne Mullen because Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell don't like one another. Neva. Well, I think it's... I think that's not exactly true. I mean, I think the takeaway is this. Mark Wayne Mullen uh, and James Langford, as the two U.S. Senate uh, uh, candidates, races, Senator Langford, uh, Congressman Mullen, now the nominee in the other congressional or in the other Senate race, what we have is the backdrop of the focus on national Democrats. It's not about Oklahoma Democrats who historically, in the last multiple elections, have helped to uh, make the percentage of number uh, for each of these Republicans winning at the top of the ticket significant because they have crossed over and voted because they mirror their values, they mirror what they want to see uh, contended with in Washington, D.C. So uh, to make it a national race, which it appears that uh, we have the two horns that have kind of taken that landscape and and, uh, are trying to seize the mantle, will not play in Oklahoma. I mean, Oklahomans know know their senators. They know what they want. They know what they've had in Senator Inhofe. They know what they want in the replacement for Senator Inhofe. And so I think when you see this, um, uh, what took place on election 
uh, night uh, earlier this week is we had a case where Mark Wayne Mullen and T.W. Shannon basically uh, joined arms and said, you know, we we're coming together. I mean, we what we have is if there is, quote, a common enemy, the con- common enemy is what is going on in Washington, D.C. with the Biden administration, with a Democrat-controlled Congress, and they want that changed. And so I think uh, the upshot is that uh, uh, there's unity and there's a focused message. And to suggest that uh, this is an attack on Oklahoma Democrats or Oklahoma independents or libertarians is absolutely ludicrous. It is about Oklahomans unified in what they want in their representatives uh, in November when the election takes place. Well, and I'm, I'm just using uh, Mark Wayne Mullen's own words. I mean, he didn't say national Democrats. And we've seen this for a long time. I, when I was running for re-election in my last campaign. I was a, you know, a supporter of Barack Obama. Uh, Democrats are attacked as, you know, the party of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I mean, we hear that. Uh, but his, his own language is that, you know, our fight isn't in the party anymore, anymore. Our fight is with the Democrats, with individuals that are trying to destroy this country. I think that, you know, that language, whether it's directed at national Democrats or state Democrats, that language is, is part of the kind of problem that we have with our divisive nature in politics, the tribalism that we have in politics, where people on the other side uh, are are not just, again, not just opponents, but seen as enemies. I, I think that the forums like, you know, that we have right here are, are becoming increasingly rare where two people or three people can sit down and have a conversation uh, and not just immediately draw a line in the sand and say, I, I think that what you're trying to do is to fundamentally dismantle this country and you're a threat to our nation. That's that's a different level of this rhetoric that he's well, gone to. It may be. In and your, different than it, what Senator Langford has done but, as well. But let's also think about the fact that uh, you also have Democrats who <laughs> have eviscerated uh, the Republican president when he was uh, when he was in the White House uh, and Republicans when they controlled Congress. I mean, the, the contrast between the parties and what they want to see at the national level is stark. And I think in Oklahoma, it is very clear that that type of very liberal, very out there agenda that is uh, right now front and center uh, with the Biden administration is something that Oklahomans will continue to reject. Uh, meanwhile, Senator Langford is facing Madison Horn, who beat Jason Bollinger for the Democratic runoff. The ballot in November also includes Libertarian Kenneth Blevins and Independent Michael Delaney. Neva, you are a general consultant for Langford, and while no election is an automatic win, is Langford fairly secure in his chance for re-election? Well, again, I think when we talk about the federal races uh, across the board, I mean, we have to look at those, and they set up very well for Republicans to have uh, great success on November 8th. And I think that is uh, born out of the fact of what we've just talked about, the fact that Oklahomans have a choice, and the choice does Uh, come down to what they want to see in their elected leaders as they go to Washington and represent them and be their voice in Washington Mm -hmm. on the issues that are of ultimate uh, significance and importance in their minds. So uh, it is, I think no one would uh, argue that it's an uphill battle in these races for the Democrats, just like Ryan just said. Um, But there will be elections, and for the next 10 weeks plus, they there will be campaigns conducted, and the voters ultimately will have the final say at the election box, and that's what makes this election season, as all election seasons, what it's all about. 
Right. Well, you know, uh, uh, Senator Langford's lucky to have Neva. Neva's not going to let him go on vacation between now and the election. <laughs> right. uh, you know, and, and I don't think that he would anyways. I mean, he has. Yeah, uh, he, does, he doesn't need me for that to be the case. <laughs> ever, ever since he announced uh, for 5th District and, and was a member of, won that seat to become a member of Congress, I mean, he has been a, a pretty tireless campaigner. I, I also think that in, in many instances, uh, even though he certainly hasn't moderated himself as much as I would like for him to moderate himself, he does present a different tone than Mark Wayne Mullen. So um, it will be interesting to see uh, kind of the contrast mm-hmm. and, and the, the messaging between, because it's pretty rare that you have two U.S. Senate seats going on a parallel with one another. Uh, and so the messaging that Mark Wayne Mullen's going to push uh, versus the messaging that we see out of Senator Langford's campaign, my sense is that they're going to be a little bit different um, and, and, you know, different in style, different in tone. And this is, you know, and I hate to just, you know, disregard Madison Horde altogether because, you know, she she is, I mean, she, you know, did a, a wonderful job winning the primary, you know, winning a, a runoff election. And, and I think that, you know, she is also a tireless campaigner and, and maybe in a, in a different political environment would be uh, a, a much more formidable challenge uh, for Senator Lankford. But right now, to me, the interesting thing in these two U.S. Senate campaigns is will we see any of kind of the national debate that's happening within the Republican Party about trying to move the party away from being the party of Trump. Does that play out at all in the two U.S. Senate races here in Oklahoma with Mullen probably doubling down on Trump? Does Langford do that? Uh, I don't know. And, and you know, I think we'll see. I, you know, I, I genuinely hope that the party can become a functional uh, political party again and that we can just disagree on that rather than having to have a Republican Party that has too many members like Mark Wayne Mullen that feel that their path to power is to demonstrate fealty to Donald Trump. The Republican race for Congressional District 2, which started with 14 candidates, has finally come down to one. Former State Senator Josh Burkeen defeated State Representative Avery Fricks on Tuesday. Burkeen moves on to face Democrat Naomi Andrews and Independent Ben Johnson for the Eastern Oklahoma County seat. Neva, how do you rate his chances in November? Well, I think it's almost a foregone conclusion, certainly, that uh, the Republican has every advantage. Josh Burkeen in in the 2nd District is the likely next congressman. Uh, but there, but there certainly is a race. I think the int- the the uh, dynamic there is that the the folks that are opposing uh, uh, Josh Burkeen are going to have, I think, great difficulty getting funding and being able mm-hmm. to mount a serious campaign. I mean, this is uh, the the campaign that was fascinating was this runoff where you had uh, ultimately about sixty four thousand votes cast, but probably in the neighborhood of seven million dollars spent in this congressional uh, race, and mm-hmm. that uh, may be record setting. Uh, certainly, probably in this in the second district. So, um, and it, I think it was interesting that when. When the slugfest was over, I mean, you really had about th- less than 3,000 votes separating right. uh, the two candidates. So it was um, it was hard fought, um, and certainly geography, I think, always has a lot to do with that district because it is so large, and 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 there there are pockets uh, both north and south uh, in that district that uh, weigh in heavily. And you had Fritz from the Muskogee area, you had Burkine from Durant in that area. So there was that uh, that contrast, and even more dramatic, I think, was the fact that 
Josh Burkeen became the candidate of the Freedom Caucus. I mean, you had uh, the, you had the Congressional, the House Freedom Fund, which uh, has um, um, some of the more high-profile Congress uh, men and women in there, is uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio and Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and others. Uh, there were other members of that caucus that came in and campaigned uh, with Josh Burkeen in the closing stretch. Uh, and certainly there was a lot of money poured in on both sides. So uh, we'll see we'll see some interesting dynamics uh, in terms of uh, what this looks like going forward. But uh, it's certainly... It's certainly a change in terms of um, Mark Wayne Mullen being from the uh, northern end of that uh, district and now Josh Burkeen from the southern end of the, end of the district, potentially, if he ultimately uh, prevails on November 8th. But uh, I think that you've got, uh, you've, you've got a lot of folks that paid some attention to this race because of the intensity in the runoff. I don't think we'll see as much focus in the, in the general. Ryan, you know, I, I don't either. And, and it's a shame. Uh, ben Bulldog Robinson uh, as an independent in this race, you know, former Senator uh, Ben Robinson, uh, you know, to the extent that he's able to Democrat Senator Dem- Ben Robinson, yeah, mm-hmm. Democratic Senator Ben Robinson, you know, to the extent that he is able to, uh, you know, mount any sort of a campaign. I, you know, he's he is just a treasure trove of uh, policy knowledge and understanding of Oklahoma. Does he have a shot in November? I mean, it's a snowball's chance uh, in, in, in last week's weather. So I, I, th- I, I would love to see him be uh, formidable, but I just I just don't see that happening. The, the campaign, I think, you know, Neva's right. You know, geography played a, a huge part in it. You know, where are those votes coming from? You know, who is you know, showing up? Uh, Burkina got that advantage on election night, but it was a very small advantage. I mean, you watch those returns come in. I mean, it was neck and neck all, all night long. It was really kind of towards the end when you begin to see some of those boxes, and I'm, I'm assuming coming from the Durant area, were dropping in that were giving Burkina a little bit more of a cushion going into the, uh, uh, to the final numbers. Um, you know, without exit polling, it's difficult to really understand or, or appreciate what did make the difference. But in a race that's this close, uh, then, you know, having your, your former constituency as a state senator, you know, every, and then, you know, Representative Fricks bringing his constituency in, the outside money that came in, the, the endorsement from the Freedom Caucus, which is interesting. It's this interesting new dynamic that's happening in congressional races. It happens on the Democratic side as well, where internal caucuses within the congressional delegate, within uh, members of Congress, um, begin to come in and recruit people. It's it's almost like, you know, which cafeteria table are you going to sit at? You know, it's and, you know, instead of like like most kids, you know, walk in and this, you, you, you scan the, the cafeteria and you figure that out in the first week or so of school. You know, these kids, uh, meaning Congress members elect, they already know what table they're sitting at at the cafeteria. They know who their friends are going up there. And that's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, I, I don't know how that would feel in terms of a, a member elect going to Congress and feeling like they, they already had some people internally that they might be able to disappoint or that they had to support in a way that, you know, they might not otherwise. But this is, this is, I, I think, uh, you know, it was a, it was a toss up race all along. If, if anybody told you back whenever filing happened that, you know, this was going to be the outcome, that it was going to be Frick's leading in the primary and Burkine coming from behind uh, in a narrow, uh, narrow behind in the, uh, in the runoff to win, Nobody, nobody could have predicted that, and that's what you get when you get 14 folks throwing their hat in the ring. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, one of the things that was really, I think, a, a separating topic, uh, and certainly a lot of the paid advertising seemed to focus on it, was the fact that Burkine really hammered Fritz on the uh, 
that 2018 vote, mm-hmm. uh, tax vote, and you know, really kind of made him out to be the guy that had raised your taxes across the board. Um, and Burkeen at the time, um, it, I think, believe it was his last year as a state senator, uh, he was one of only 10 senators at the time that voted against that mm-hmm. uh, against that measure. So mm-hmm. there was a contrast there. The other contrast is that Burkeen has made it very clear that among his goals is that he wants to see congressional term limits. Uh, he wants to see um, kind of the other things that oftentimes Everybody are Everybody does ta- until they're there. Until the, and and yeah. but I think what we saw with him in the in the state senate was that he stayed two terms mm-hmm. and went home. So whether that is um, he's someone that started out and cut his teeth with Senator uh, Tom Coburn as a field staffer. So there is that natural disposition to be very strong on that subject. So he may um, I don't recall that I heard that he specifically made that pledge, but I think it's certainly something that will be talked about uh, much of his time if he does go to Washington. Well, and I don't doubt that that 2018 vote that then Senator Burkeen took was, you know, genuinely reflected his idea of, you know, whether this should go up or down. I don't think he did it for political purposes, but I bet when he cast that vote, he put it in his back pocket and he said, one of these days, uh, one of these days I'm going to be able to use this um, to my advantage. And he sure did on election night. Governor Sitt, Secretary of Education Ryan Walters pulled out a win on Tuesday to get the Republican nomination for state superintendent over April Grace. He now faces Teacher of the Year Gina Nelson in November. Ryan, does Nelson have a chance to beat Walters with Stitt's backing? Oh, absolutely she does. I I think that this is uh, a statewide race that's going to be very competitive. If you look at the margin that Ryan Walters won in the primary, it was very small. And I I think that what that says is that, and you you have to keep in mind that when the, the, the folks that show up in a, in a runoff are usually, you know, a little bit more ideologically, I don't want to say extreme in a, in a bad way, but, you know, they're a little bit more ideologically aligned with, uh, you know, the, the outer elements of their, of their party. And that's true on the Democratic side as it is on the Republican side. So you've got to assume that this electorate that showed up uh, statewide and cast their ballots in this race were much more conservative Republicans and even still uh, Ryan Walters' message of you know this this ludicrous idea that our schools are being uh, you know just taken over by uh, you know the the woke kids and you know turning kids you know the whole thing right it's just the indoctrination whatever it's just it's just ridiculous but that didn't sell to uh, you know sweeping part of the Republican primary uh, or even the runoff and so. I think that there's there are going to be some of those Republican voters there uh, that are going to be potential persuadables uh, for Jenna Nelson going into the general election. I think independents and then Democrats are going to be very motivated about this race, maybe even more so than the gubernatorial race at this point, because we're beginning to see consequences of what these decisions look like on the ground. And, you know, with just Norman last week, uh, a teacher that was, I think, suspended or was going to be suspended. And I think she's resigned now because she, you know, gave kids a QR code to find the New York Public Library's section on banned books, which, by the way, you want to get kids to read, ban a book. Uh, ban a book. Tell them you can't do it. I love this. This is, you know, outstanding literacy program. Uh, you know, just tell them you can't do it. And of course they want to do it. But, you know, so this kind of uncertainty and you know, I'll tell you as, as a parent of two public school kids right now, and I look at the challenges that our public schools are facing, um, you know, Brian Walters isn't talking about it. And frankly, he's injecting a kind of chaos uh, into that that is not good for students, not good for teachers, it's not good for parents. 
And I think that that's going to be something that's going to cause him trouble into this general election, regardless of whether or not the governor supports him. All right. Uh, Neva. Well, and clearly this was as much a referendum on Governor Stitt as it was Ryan Walters. Ryan Walters was his handpicked secretary of education, someone who um, uh, this is his first campaign. And certainly the governor and, and all of the uh, uh, forces behind him were marshaled not only uh, from a fundraising standpoint, but from, I think, a grassroots organiz- organiza- organizational standpoint. Um, and I think what we uh, what we saw is a, a real slugfest that came down to less than 19,000 votes separating out of the, uh, I think, almost 280,000 casts. So it was competitive. And I think, to your point, Ryan, the big question, I think, in the minds of some in the education community in particular is, are those folks that are the 130,000 that did not vote for Ryan Walters, was it, uh, what was the reason? I mean, was it the issue of school choice exclusively? Was it uh, something uh, different in terms of issues or personality? Um, but this could be kind of the breakout secondary race that gets a lot of attention, could be very high spending. Uh, clearly, I think Democrats are as focused on that race as they are the governor's race. You have two females in both of those uh, positions uh, that may work in tandem. So you could have the governor and his uh, his choice for the next uh, superintendent of education versus uh, the current superintendent mm-hmm. of public instruction, Joy Hoffmeister, and the nominee uh, on the Democrat side. So it could make for a fascinating, uh, uh, a fascinating fall campaign. And I think it's clear from what was said, even on election night, that uh, Ryan Walters basically said that it was Governor Stitt's education biz- vision and school choice that was going to happen in the state of Oklahoma. So they've thrown down the gauntlet. Uh, there's been a lot of money come in already, not only at the uh, statewide level in these races, but legislative races, as we talked about, particularly in the primary, but even in the runoff. A number of those races at the legislative uh, runoff level were turning on school choice. I mean, who was for or who was not for school choice? That seemed to be an issue that had bubbled up and was uh, paramount in some of those uh, some of those races that came down to the wires. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of conversation about this, and we'll see in rural Oklahoma whether they take to that conversation mm-hmm. or whether or not they feel that threatens the very livelihood of their communities, which mm-hmm. is their public schools. So um, I think I think this will be one to watch and could get some national attention as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, uh, I think Democrats have to be careful here as they're trying to persuade independents and Republicans to come over and at the same time energize their base that they don't fall into the trap of being opposite everything that Ryan Walters is saying uh, or or immediately discrediting concerns from a parent that they hear about uh, that is concerned about something that their kid learned in school. Um, you know, I think that there are ways to think about that, <clears throat> ways to think about parental involvement, uh, and but without having to go to this extreme that Ryan Walters has. But if the Democrats go the other way uh, and try to speak to a very narrow class of people on uh, social media, I think that that opportunity for them to win this seat in November, I think it evaporates. Despite backing by Governor Stitt, State Representative Sean Roberts lost his attempt to unseat Republican Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne. 
Osborne now faces Democrat Jack Henderson and Libertarian Will Doherty in November. Neva, does this primary win give her a boost heading into the general election? Oh, absolutely. And I think, again, I think uh, it certainly sets up for the likelihood that uh, Leslie Osborne will be reelected labor commissioner. I mean, when you look at, uh, again, the opponents that will be on the ballot in November are underfunded, uh, have will have, I think, an exceedingly difficult time being able to raise money or get a message out there. Uh, it's not a race. Those secondary races always suffer from lack of interest, lack of focus. And unless there is something to really uh, create uh, some interest, uh, it's going to be very difficult for her opponents to really mount a serious challenge in, in all likelihood. So I think the other thing about the takeaway of this race is that we did have the governor supporting her opponent uh, going against an incumbent Republican office holder and not being successful. And, um, and I think uh, there were several factors in that. Certainly a lot of the last minute uh, give and take, the lawsuit that was uh, thrown out there, a lot of the allegations thrown out there. And I think that this will be something that will continue beyond the election returns. I mean, this is something the, where we'll still be talking about this probably well into the fall, some of the aftermath of some of those actions. And I think that uh, the, the upshot in terms of Leslie Osborne and her race was that she was well-funded and ran a strong campaign and that uh, uh, all of the, uh, all of the, the problems that uh, came up with Sean Roberts toward the end became insurmountable. And the governor, uh, the, the governor really seemed to really focus at the end on making sure Ryan Walters got across the finish line more so than even Sean Roberts. I mean, there was yeah. more last minute intensity and activity in that race because I think there was, again, as the results indicated, a much more competitive race all the way to the wire. Right. Well, Jenna Nelson and Democrats on the superintendent race, they've got Ryan Walters to raise money against. I mean, they, they have a very clear line in the sand of here is a candidate that we believe is just frankly too extreme and too disastrous for public education in Oklahoma. We cannot let him win. That's where that support and intensity is going to come from. You're not going to find that against Leslie Osborne. Leslie Osborne is a genuine, just a legitimate moderate. Uh, and she, you know, wakes up every morning and goes and does her job at the Labor Commission and, you know, you know, really hasn't uh, become one of these political firebrands. And so when she was running for re-election, I know, you know she was reaching out to uh, not just Republicans, but independents, but Democrats, you know, raising money, talking about her campaign. There are a lot of Democrats who are like, you know what, if even if in a statewide secondary race like this, without a really strong candidate on the other side that's well-funded, just stick with the moderate. I mean, I, I think that that's, she's going to have a very easy path, I think, going to November, uh, most likely will be re-elected. And I, I think... It's a, it's a success story uh, for moderate, moderates, and I think it's also a, a blueprint for how Republicans can run and win in states like Oklahoma without having to you know, kiss the boots of Donald Trump. In a non-runoff news, the Secretary of State has certified <laughs> enough signatures to get recreational marijuana on the ballot. State question 820 would allow for the legal use of marijuana for anyone over 21 with money going to schools, health organizations, and local governments. Ryan, you're a senior advisor for this group. How likely is it we'll see this on the ballot in November? I think we'll know in the coming days. Uh, you know, as folks are listening to this, you're, you're probably listening to it after uh, on Friday after a Supreme Court referee has heard arguments from our camp and also arguments from the state about the request that we've made. Uh, and that's that's very simple. It's to ask the, uh, the court, which has the ultimate decision, to make a final decision on what the ballot title language will be 
send that to the election board, have the election board print these ballots, and have them ready. Uh, they don't have to send these things out until September 25th. That's the real deadline. They've got to have them out by September 25th for servicemen and women and absentee ballots overseas. Um, the secretary of the election board right now is saying that the deadline he has is August 26th. Uh, he has to have notice by close of business of what's going to be on the ballot because he wants to go to print on August 29th. I'm sure that's convenient, but at the end of the day, that's nowhere in statute. That's nowhere in the Constitution. It's nowhere in rule. They made it up. And so it, it shouldn't be a lot of in, you know inconvenience. A minor inconvenience is a small price to pay for a government to ensure one of the most precious rights that we have as Oklahomans, the right to initiative petition, is fulfilled. I'll say 117,000 Oklahomans with valid signatures certified by the state election board or state sec, uh, the secretary of state. Um, the we turned these in on July 5th. The count took over seven weeks. Uh, previous counts have taken three weeks or less. Uh, even with the new process where they say they're validating every signature against the voter roll, the idea that that, that takes seven plus weeks is just ridiculous. And so we did everything right. Oklahomans are ready to vote on this. Waiting even a year means more people ending up in jail and prison and loss of millions of dollars in revenue that would be coming in from adult use marijuana sales going into as you mentioned, Michael, critical state services, all without raising taxes on anybody except for those buying recreational marijuana, many of whom are going to be our neighbors to the south from Texas. And I, I love taking money out of their pockets. Neva. <laughs> well, it will be interesting to see what happens. I mean, and, and what the court does, what this, you know, what what occurs. But if it gets on the ballot, it it's a fascinating question because uh, I've heard arguments on both sides, mm -hmm. uh, who it helps, who it hurts in terms of party, in terms of turnout, all of those kind of things. I think uh, uh, kind of a sidebar to this is that uh, that I did read, uh, I believe this week, that uh, the uh, folks that were involved with the uh, state question uh 818 and 819 now say that they do not have sufficient time to uh, kind of move forward with their uh, with their petitions and will not be filing anything. So it really centers now on this one question of will this be on the ballot on November 8th or will it be a year from now or whenever uh, the governor can next put it on the ballot? So um, and will there be fallout if it doesn't make the ballot? Uh, who knows? I mean, mm -hmm. I, you would you would certainly be able to speak better to that, Ryan. But I think it is uh, something that uh, folks are paying a little attention to on both sides, those that are certainly favorite, but also those who oppose it, uh, believe that the medical marijuana was uh, what people voted on overwhelmingly uh, in 2018. And for all practical purposes, many people believe it's uh, illegalized uh, marijuana today in the state of Oklahoma, except that you have to buy uh, you know, a card to uh, legally be able to uh, uh, purchase it. So it'll be a fascinating campaign if it takes place. But uh, uh, I would say I would agree with you on the issue of the fact that it took as long as it did for the process to go forward through the Secretary of State's office. Uh, those things need to be streamlined and not be issues in the future. Every election cycle, we hear from lawmakers, and they, they talk about the initiative petition process. Many of them don't like it. They want to change it. They say that it needs to be harder. Let me just tell you, as somebody who's been through you know several of these uh, initiative petitions at this point, some that have won, some that have failed, it's not easy. On this one, it cost us over $2 million to get our signatures uh, in time. Uh, the, the amount of effort and, and uh, just personnel power that it takes to, to get here. And then, you know, the, the legal challenges, you know, the amount of, of legal fees that we've had to pay for really smart lawyers. My, my, my good friend and counsel, Melanie Regani, uh, who's just done r remarkable work and will be arguing in front of the court uh, on Friday. 
Um, all of that stuff costs a lot of money. The, you know, the, the idea that we have a process that's uh, too easy isn't really the question. The, the idea that we need to fix it, absolutely. There, there ought to be you know, deadlines in place. Uh, you know, f- you know, if you turn in by this date, you're guaranteed to make it. Uh, there ought to be obligations on the Secretary of State or any vendor that they pick. This is how long you have to count. Now, I will say in, in conversations that I've had with uh, the governor's team about this, there, there is a willingness that whatever happens here uh, to have a conversation on the back end about how can we reform this system so there's more certainty moving forward in the future for proponents of these initiatives or people that may want to protest them. Mm-hmm. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.